Hello, this is Sharon Khan. I'm a serial entrepreneur, CEO of Pepperlane, mother of two daughters, and the host of Step Out of Line. I started this podcast for one simple reason. I'm curious about what made people take turns in their life, when and why they took risks, what inspired them to step out of line and write their own stories, even though the outcome was not clear. I'm looking to interview people that have the courage not to follow a straight line and to follow their own truth. Step Out of Line was born after I listened to Alex Burstein that shared this powerful story during her Amy's acceptance speech. Listen to it. My grandmother turned to a guard. She was in line to be shot into a pit, and she said, what happens if I step out of line? And he said, I don't have the heart to shoot you, but somebody will. And she stepped out of line. And for that, I am here. And for that, my children are here. So step out of line, ladies. Step out of line. I don't believe that there's some other being. I believe that my guiding hand, my helping hand, is my best self. It's me, just fully evolved. And so the more that I can live from that place, the more help that I get, because I'm getting help for myself. Natalie Kogan stepped out of line in every aspect of her life. She's an artist, a storyteller, and the founder of Happier, a global technology and learning platform helping individuals and organizations to realize full potential by adopting scientifically proven practices that improve their well-being. From her teenage years as a Russian refugee learning English in the project outside of Detroit to becoming a leading venture capitalist while in, still in her 20s, Natalie has continually stepped out of line. Since launching Happier, Natalie has been featured in the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Fortune, New York Magazine, and Time Magazine. She is on a mission to help all of us to experience the positive effects of gratitude, kindness, and mindfulness in our daily lives. I am delighted to welcome my dear friend, Natalie, to the show. I am so excited to be here. We've done so many things in our lives together, and now we get to step out of line together. I want to start from the beginning. Tell me, where did you grow up and what was it like to grow up in your family? As you said in your intro, I grew up in the former Soviet Union. And the thing that I always say about my family is there was so much love. That's what I remember from the earliest yeah. days. You know, it's interesting because what we know about growing up in a communist Russia is shortages, right? And yeah. we did. We had shortages of food. We had shortages of electricity. We had shortages of everything. Every fall, there was a panic in our house because where were my parents going to get me boots for the cold winter and a coat? Because as a kid, you keep growing. So you can't use the same clothes. So I just use that example because I've been in America for 30 years and my daughter is 15 and you have kids. When they grow, you need clothes. You go to the store, you buy the clothes. The only thing you worry about, like, oh, are they going to like the color? I remember like the shortages and the obsession of like, are we going to have enough? But that is actually something I have to remember. It's not what I feel. My feeling from growing up is just being surrounded and a lot of love. Mm -hmm. My parents, I'm an only child. My parents 
worked very, very hard, I think, to insulate me from any of the stuff that they had to deal with, including anti-Semitism, including shortages of food. I remember some, I, I was born actually in Baku, which is mm -hmm. the capital of Azerbaijan, it's the south of Russia, where there was much more fruit and vegetables available, still shortages, but it grew there, so it was more available. And my grandpa, who's still alive, who's 95 and a half, who is an amazing picture of resilience, what he would do is he would pack boxes of fruits and vegetables in Baku, bring them to a train station, and then pay mm -hmm. someone a couple of rubles to bring them to us so that I could eat them. And the reason I remember that is my dad once, I have this image, this memory of him like taking, I, I think it was a peach out of mm -hmm. the refrigerator and biting into it. And my mom was in our kitchen and she gave him this look, that's the child's fruit because my parents wouldn't eat any of it. It was all for me. So I was always surrounded with all this love. And, you know, you've been to my house. One of the core ways that I show love is through cooking, because that's what my mom did. That's yeah. what my grandma did. I have no idea how they made these amazing meals that they did, because there really wasn't stuff in the store. But again, it all comes back to love. And the other thing about growing up is being a Jew in Russia was you were a second-rate citizen. Literally in your passport, it said nationality, Jewish. You were not considered a Russian citizen. And being Jewish, that meant you were, everyone was allowed to persecute against you. Like my dad could not defend his PhD for years because he was a Jew. My mom couldn't get a job as a pianist, as a piano teacher, because she was a Jew. In school, they could lower my grades because I was Jewish. In my dance group, they never let me travel outside the city because I was Jewish. And so... I remember from a very early age, I don't know who said it to me. I think it was my dad, this idea that, listen, for you to be even, you have to be 10 times better than anyone else. Mm. And that was instilled in me, I'm going to say, before kindergarten. Because that mentality of, first of all, me against the world, because we are persecuted, but this mentality of, I must be better than myself yesterday, and I must be better than anyone else. That was instilled in me very early on because every day was literally a fight. And so those are kind of my two themes from childhood. And then upon reflection, you know, when I was writing my book, the thing that I realized is part of how my family, I guess, experienced love and showed love was to not really talk about difficult feelings. Yeah. And that's actually a contradiction because Russians are fantastic at suffering. Okay. <laughs> like the joke I always tell on stage is Russians are good at three things suffering, making others suffer, and complaining about suffering. <laughs> like Russians are amazing at that. So on one hand, there was always a lot of suffering. And, you know, Jews are fantastic at suffering also. Yeah. So I had all of that. I talked about my grandma being an amazing cook. Like she would make these unbelievable meals, just feasts, right? And when we were in Baku, but they were presented with so much suffering. Like as she brought out the lamb, she would tell us how she almost had a heart attack making it and how the kitchen was so small and how much she suffered. And to show love, we would suffer together. Right. We would say like, oh my God, that is terrible. And then the next thing was like, this is actually not even good lamb. And we would all say how, yes, you're right. The other lamb was better. So on one hand, suffering was how I learned you show love by suffering together. But the other part was that we really didn't talk about difficult feelings because that was almost a luxury. To talk about challenges or sadness or fear or whatever, that's a luxury we didn't have because we were fighters. It took me until I was writing my book two years ago to really go deeper in myself about this whole experience of being a Jew in Russia, being persecuted, becoming a refugee, that I didn't realize it's almost... I'm going to use this word, which I really hesitate, but enough professionals have used it when I tell them the story. That was a traumatic thing yes. for a young kid to learn that. And 
I think I've carried that with me. I'm 44 until I was about 42 and I'm still there. It's still a practice to figure that out. But those are some of the like the roots of emotional roots and also the feeling roots that stayed with me. Yeah. And I think about it, it's pretty incredible, you know, because the way you described the situation for you, you know, some kids will fall into, you know, lack of security, feel that they're not good enough. And you took the opposite approach by saying, I'm going to be 10 times more better than anyone else. I did. When you were in kindergarten. I did. That's incredible. I did. And then, you know, when we were in refugee camps and then we came to the U.S., but this point that you, the thing about I'm not good enough, that also stayed and that has stayed. And it's actually really interesting. A very dear friend of mine said that he read a research paper that was done, I believe in Yale University, I'm not sure, that looked at why are Jews and Chinese people often so successful, found that there are two very contrasting characteristics that they have. One is they have the imposter syndrome. They feel like they're not good enough. And the other is they feel that they're special and they can be great. And I relate to that so much because I've always believed that I have this special opportunity to do something amazing in my life, with my life because I got this gift of growing up in America. My parents made this huge sacrifice and so did I. It was really hard, our journey. So I always felt like I have this special gift and responsibility, but I've also always felt like oh, I'm not sure I'm good enough. And you've known me for enough years to know that. It's a weird thing to say. Like, I'm confident in what I'm doing, but I always feel like, oh, other people might be better. And so it's actually those two factors, which seem like they don't belong together, that I think have led me to do all the different things I've done. Yeah. Talk to me about it, because this is such an incredible story. You came from the Soviet Union, and you just landed in the project, you know, outside of Detroit. What does it look like for a young girl? It sucks. No, I mean, it sucks. I mean, the, the good thing, the universe had some grace because first we were in refugee settlements yeah. in Europe and Italy, and that really looked bad. Like we shared, I think it was a two bedroom apartment, mm -hmm. but like somehow it was less than that with another family. We were there for two and a half months. We got a stipend from the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society to help mm -hmm. us. That went for rent. One of the most painful memories for me from that time is my parents, you know, my dad's a PhD scientist. My mother is a, a pianist and a piano teacher. They're my heroes. But there was this market every night in Ladispoli, the little town where we stayed, of these like brilliant Russian doctors, engineers, scientists, teachers selling tchotchkes that we brought from Russia to just make a few extra lira just mm -hmm. to buy dinner. Like it's one of the saddest thing I remember. And I was hungry often because there wasn't enough food. So I think the refugee camp was so bad that for a little bit, Living in the projects outside Detroit and Ypsilanti, it was like, okay, this is America. It's better. But it sucked. I mean, at 13 and a half, I don't think any of us want to move across the street. And here I was in a, every single thing is unfamiliar. I didn't know how to open a locker in school. Like this whole idea where you turn the knob to the right, to the left, and to the right, it's completely natural to all Americans. Mm -hmm. How do you know that's what it is? So every single thing was unfamiliar. I spoke almost no English. The English I spoke was with a horrible accent. So, you know, I would say like in eighth grade, we're not the picture of kindness and compassion. <laughs> and so every day somebody made fun of me. At lunch, it became like a tradition. I mean, I stopped going to lunch in the lunchroom, but, you know, my mom would pack me sandwiches, kind of Russian style. In Russia, we eat dark bread. 
So my parents would get like dark rye bread and she would often like, you know, slice hot dogs because it was cheap and put them in. And I remember one of the first times she did that, one of the kids actually grabbed my sandwich and started running around the lunchroom showing it to everyone. They were all laughing because he found it so ridiculous that the hot dog doesn't have a hot dog bun. Because in eighth grade, that's how we are. And so it was awful. And again, because I learned to not share these things with my parents. I'm not saying they told me not to, but I learned that I shouldn't. I didn't have anyone to talk to about this. And I didn't even talk to myself about it. I just stuffed it down. So it was awful. And the only hope I had, and this is hilarious, but I love sharing it is, you know, I come home from school. It was a great escape. No one was home. We got food donation boxes every week from the local synagogue. And for some reason, they always put Rice Krispie cereal in it. I don't know why. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. We didn't have dry cereal in Russia. So I come from come home from school, get the box of Rice Krispies, get milk, and sit in our kind of gross living room and watch TV and eat Rice Krispies. And TV was first a fantastic escape, but it was an amazing English teacher. And my hero became the character of Sam on the show, Who is the Boss, played by Alyssa Milano. She became my hope because I was like, okay, if I can just be like her, speak English like her, have high top pink Jordache sneakers like her, I'll be happy. And she literally became like the first thread of hope for me of like, that was my vision. So that's how I spent the first year. And it's interesting because I from time to time get memories from that year because yeah. and I'm like, oh, interesting. And it's been 30 years because most of it, my brain just kind of put away because there was no way to deal with it. But it sounds to me that you made a very clear decision that you going to accomplish the American dream, whatever it was when you were, you know. At some point I did. At some point I did. And it wasn't, it's interesting. It sounds so cheesy, but it's true. I write about it in my book, like this idea that once I become like Salmon, who is the boss, I'll be happy. It really was the seed of this whole, I'll be happy when, right? right? And that was like the seed of, okay, if I can achieve a bunch of things and become really successful and take care of my family, then I will be happy. And then I would have made all the struggle worth it. I felt this weight of responsibility because I got this amazing opportunity. I have to do something unbelievably great with it. So I did make that decision, maybe not as consciously at the beginning. But you know, I also just want to be really honest like that. It wasn't like I made the decision and that was it. Somewhere in there, I went on hunger strikes because I didn't know how to deal with my feelings. So I would like stop eating. I don't know if this made it into the book, but one of the most painful memories of my life is like I stopped eating because I didn't know what else to do. Like, what else do you do? And after a couple of days, my parents realized it. So in Russia, in the morning, we eat buckwheat, mm-hmm. warm buckwheat with milk. I actually love it. I make it like at our house all the time. So I remember sitting in the kitchen with this bowl of buckwheat with milk in it. And my parents are sitting on the side And they're like exasperated. And now as a parent, like my heart breaks because they found out I haven't been eating and they realize it's from the sadness. But then eventually my dad said, if you do not take a spoon of this, I'm going to get into the car and drive into that building. And he started getting up and I took a spoon. So I'm just sharing that as like, it was complete turmoil inside. Yes. You know, I didn't know what to do with it. So while the seed of this decision of reaching for the American dream was there, it was a total mess. But slowly I found salvation in achievements. Yeah, because when I'm looking on your career path, it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, you just getting to the top in everything that you're doing. I I did. You're still doing it. Do you see that path? And, you know, one of the reasons that I was so looking forward to interview you is that 
it doesn't seem to me like it's a straight line. I mean, you're stepping out of line all the time, whatever you're after. I want to talk a little bit about that. You got into one of the best universities in the country. You just graduated at the top of my class. Right. Say this for my right, grandparents. Right, right. We're so excited. Right. And then you, you continued. And again, in an industry that is really not always welcome, female, definitely not in their 20s, you just went fast to the top, right? And became a venture capitalist. And then you went ahead and raised capital. You know, this is when you and I met. I even remember at some point that you decided to give back money. You just do whatever you want. See, this is so, this is why I'm excited to talk about this because my mom always tells me, you know, yeah. you're so gutsy. You just do whatever you want, you know? Yeah. And, and that's not true, but that's what it looks from the yes, outside, right? Yes. And this is why I'm excited. Yeah. And this is why I wrote my book. This is why I share my story yeah. when I'm getting it's a not keynote. easy. It just looks because easy. Because it just, it isn't the same. Now, I don't want to undermine my achievements because the thing is I've worked so hard. And so I want to honor that. And I want to honor myself because we women really need to be better at that. I have worked really hard and I've achieved really amazing things. But not only did it not come easy, it came at a huge expense. When I kind of set on this path of I'll be happy when I achieve all these things, my religion was grit. This word that's become really popular and it's a wonderful characteristic, but that was all I did. It was grit and bear it. I never acknowledged how I felt. I never treated myself as a human being. Like people ask me, what is the difference now? Like you're still very ambitious, right? I'm trying to make the world happier. Like how crazy is that? I'm trying to teach companies how to practice happiness as a skill. Like it's crazy. The difference now is that I acknowledge that I'm a human being. The way that I spent my first I don't know, 20 years in America was like a machine, treating myself as a machine, as an achievement machine. And so, you know, you talk about graduating first in my class in college, actually before venture capital, I went to McKinsey after college. McKinsey is one of the most selective companies there is in the world. They do not recruit from Wesleyan. They only recruited at the time from Ivy Leagues. I'm not sure if it's different. So it was impossible to get into McKinsey. I got into McKinsey. I had no idea what management consulting is. I competed for a scholarship because I needed money to help pay for Wesleyan. And it turned out that the scholarship came for a, uh, a summer with McKinsey and then they offered me a job on the spot. And so I just used that as an example. I don't think I ever paused and said, okay, how do I feel? Or have I slept in the last five days? Or what do I want to do? Mm -hmm. Like this question of what do I want to do? What is meaningful to me? I can honestly sit and tell you that I did not ask this question for the majority of my life. And I'm 44 years old. I did the things I thought I should do. I did things that seemed the most difficult. My major in college was the College of Social Studies. Three universities in the world have it, Wesleyan, Harvard, and Cambridge. It's a very intense major. You're basically doing uh, history, government, and economics all in one. Um, you have to apply into it. It's incredibly intense. I went to Wesleyan for that major. Because the girl who led the tour when we visited talked about it and she said how impossible it was. And I was like, okay, I should do it. It's the hardest thing. My guiding light for most of my life was to do the hardest thing. And it's connected to the suffering that I talked about. Anything worthwhile, I believe, lay on the other side of suffering. Yeah. So I had to do the hardest thing. I had to suffer. I had to be harsh towards myself because I had to achieve the hardest thing. We both immigrants. Yes. I'm curious, do you still see that as part of your identity? Is Absolutely. It is the first word in my identity. So one of my friends is a psychologist, and I guess it's this questionnaire they have for people. Yeah. One of the first things they say is, if you could use only one word to describe yourself, what would it be? Yeah. You can't use your name. You can't say man or woman. So other than those, my first word is refugee. 
And one of the greatest gifts I feel that I've been given and through the process of kind of, which I know we'll get to later, of having a breakdown and having burnout and then coming out of that. And for the first time in my life, acknowledging my emotions was the recognition that being a refugee is not an event. It is a life experience. Being a refugee affects every single choice, decision, feeling, whether I'm conscious of it or not. And most of the time I'm not, but it absolutely does because in a way it's always a little bit of a battle. Now I've worked really hard to soften myself and I've worked really hard to become aware that the world is not hostile, but that doesn't come naturally for me. It's a practice. Yeah. And that's why I talk about his skills because as a refugee, me against the world, nothing good will happen unless I like fight to the bone. That's a mentality that we gain when we're immigrants. Is it also about feeling lack of belonging? Is this home now? Does it feel home after 30 years? How many years? 30 years. You know, it's an interesting question. I guess I'm not sure, but I'll tell you for me, home has always been family. So my anchor in my life is family. We moved here from New York City to be two miles away from my parents. And I'm not saying like my parents don't drive me insane. Like, let's just be <laughs> clear, okay? You of you all know, people would know that. Yeah, they might listen to these podcasts. I'm never fantastic. Know. <laughs> they read my book, so we can't do anything else. But or that I don't drive them insane, okay? Yeah. I'm not saying any of that. But for me, family is everything. And for me, family is my anchor. So for me, Home is where my family is. And I realize, I know it's a saying, but that is true for me. So I kicked and screamed when we said we're going to move to Boston. Like I didn't like Boston. I felt like I wanted a big city in New York, but Boston's fine other than the winter because mm-hmm. my family is here. So that's my anchor. So that feels like home. Looking on our daughters. Yes. Are they different than us because they're sure. daughters of immigrants versus, you know. They are. Yeah. They are. You know, one of the things that is- I really appreciate about Mia for her. I'm grateful for her. And about that is she feels like she belongs. You know, she's a teenager and there's drama and all kinds of stuff, but she feels like she belongs. And she has very deep Russian and Jewish roots in her. She loves, we always share our experiences and she has a bunch of Russian friends and she goes to Russian math school, of course, because we have to torture our children. (laughs) But I'm conflicted. I'm really grateful in a way that she doesn't have to fight like I did. But sometimes I worry that she doesn't have to fight. Yeah, I think there's something, there's a fire in the belly that I see with immigrants. Yeah, it's something yeah. about we need to prove that we are good enough. Yes. There's something about that. Yeah, and, and we share that. As you know, I do a lot of talks and keynotes and workshops, and I always share my story at the beginning, and then I go into what I'm talking about. And there's always one or two people who come up either in Q&A or my book signing, And they say, you know, I'm an immigrant too. And it's not from Russia. It's from some other country. Yeah, no, we They say, and I'm an immigrant too. And I feel like I got a gift today because I learned something about myself from listening to you. So I think it's a bond that is universal. And it does have in it that little fire does have in it. Some of the I'm not enough or good enough. But I mean, I say this to Mia a lot. I say, sometimes I wish that there was a little bit more struggle in your life, not struggle in suffering, but a little bit more friction because that's what helps us really get to, if I didn't do all the things that I did in my life, I would never be doing this, which is my life's purpose, right? At 43, I discovered my life purpose. I wouldn't have gotten there. Yeah. But I think there's something else there. When I look again on your career path and even on your personal journey, it's not a straight line. I mean, when was the first time you felt that you stepped out of line? And how do you take turns? Because you are taking turns. I've seen you moving from one thing to another and going deep. I mean, how do you do that? So the first thing I want to say, because I think this is so important to get out in the world. 
many of my turns were not intentional, mm. meaning I did not say, I want to go work at McKinsey. I had no idea what McKinsey was. But guess what? I got a scholarship because I needed money for yeah. college. I went to work for them. They offered me a job. I literally went and I was like, what is McKinsey? What is this company? I was like, oh, this is interesting. I thought I was going to be a lawyer, but actually I never wanted to be a lawyer. I just said that because it sounded good. So let me try this thing. So I go to McKinsey and I always want to share this because so many of these moments of stepping out of line are instinctual. They're in the moment. I left McKinsey. So at McKinsey, when you're a business analyst mm -hmm. uh, right out of college, you essentially commit to two years. You don't sign it in blood, but you are committed for two years. And then usually the path is if you've done really well there, they rank everybody. You go to business school, top business schools. And then if you come back for two years, they'll pay for it. And that's kind of the McKinsey path. Well, this wasn't even in my bio, so I don't think you know this. I didn't stay two years. Here's me, a little refugee who now is at the top of the world. Yeah. People who have no idea about consulting, no McKinsey. About a year and seven months in, I was working with a client. It was a startup. This was right before the crash, four months before the crash. So McKinsey started taking on startup clients. It usually doesn't do that. And I was working with a startup and I was like, ooh, I want to work with a startup. This is more interesting. And I quit. I was the first business analyst in my class to quit before the commitment. Think of what I gave up, paid for business school. And now you want to ask me, well, were you doing well at McKinsey? I was the number two ranked business analyst in New York. To be ranked number two business analyst is crazy in my class. That's, so I was doing well yeah. and I left because I was like, ooh, this startup, this will be more interesting. Like I'm tired of theory. I didn't think it through, Sharon. I remember sitting with the head of the office. It was all fire, like alarm. They were like, one of our top analysts is leaving. They all sat with me and they were like, what are you doing? Why would you leave McKinsey? The smartest people in the world are here. I disagree with that, but like, it was like the mafia there, right? You're one of the best analysts we've ever had. If you want to change your projects, we can do that. Like, why are you leaving? They called the head of North America to talk to me. They couldn't understand. And I had an explanation. Eventually I said to them, well, I haven't met anyone at McKinsey who I want to be like. Because so I had this gut instinct, but think that of is, what I gave up. This is so bold. It's, it's so bold. It's bold and, and insane. You know what you have? Because I'm trying to figure this out. I think what most of us lacking is trust ourselves. I think you trust yourself, even if you think you don't. Because I want to jump to another one that I've seen you in action where you stepped out of line and you had so much guts. I call you the princess of the tech community. You were. You raised capital, you know, you were funded by the top VCs. Let's just say what I raised capital for. That's even cooler. I raised capital for an app called Happier right. from male right. VCs, the from app that VCs. was going to make people happier. Yes. Let's don't underestimate this achievement because female entrepreneurs don't raise capital from top ventures. Very, very few, less than 3%. What I'm amazed is that when you saw that you need to take a turn, and change the model, and you realize that you're going to flourish with happier in a very different setting, and it's not going to be venture-backed, you just took a turn and say bye-bye to the tech community. I mean, this is very gutsy, Natalie. How do you do that? And I know it wasn't a day, but you really believed in that. How did you do that? Well, so here's the thing, right? I think this is really important to pick that apart because I'm not sure I believed in it. So I had a breakdown, essentially, running Happier, the tech company. And 
it had very little to do with the company, mm-hmm. by the way. It was, I think, running a startup, any startup, it was a catalyst because I slept even less and put even more pressure, but it had nothing to do with it, really. It was all of these pent up difficult emotions that I never let myself feel and all this harshness towards myself for 30 years or 28 years that finally spilled out. And it just happened to be while I was running happier. And so I got to a very, very dark place in my life and I withdrew from life, really. I mean, everything in my life I thought was at risk of exploding and it was really scary. It was a couple of years, right? Somewhere within that, I also knew that I could not run this tech company. And I knew at a subconscious level, not conscious, that this isn't actually the thing that I wanted to do. And I had a little bit of help. You know, I've talked about her. I had this teacher who I met through, you know, my venture capitalist saved my life, right? When he asked me to acknowledge that I wasn't okay. So I met this woman who became my spiritual teacher, which is funny for a Russian Jew to say, because I grew up completely atheist, agnostic, whatever you call it. But she didn't use the word spiritual for a while, which was good. But she was someone who started to ask me questions about what is it that you actually thrive on? Like, what is it that you actually want to do? And she saw in me who I am today before I saw it, the fact that I'm a teacher. I didn't see it. So I'm just saying these things to say it wasn't like I had clarity and I believed in it and I went for it. It was really like, you know, when caterpillars become butterfly. When they first have to go through this gooey goo, they become, it's like this mess of liquid. It's awful. That's like a total mess. And then emerges a beautiful butterfly. Researchers found that the wings are actually in the goo already. So it really is the way that I can describe this. It wasn't that I was a caterpillar. It's like, oh, I'm going to become a beautiful butterfly. I went into the mess. I went into the darkness, but the wings were kind of forming there. And then through, as you said, it's not a day, it was years of acknowledging all of these things about myself for the first time, what I emerged is, oh, this is actually the first time in my life that there's something I think I want to do, not I should do, not I'm good at, therefore I should do. By the way, we immigrants are amazing at this and we entrepreneurs are amazing at this. Just because I can, I should. This is how I live my life and I'm highly capable. So I would do all these things. So for the first time when I emerged out of my caterpillar goo, I said, well, what is it that I want to do? And so, yes, going to my venture capital investors and saying to them, I'm a mess. I am not okay. I'm having a total breakdown. I can't run this company. I need to fire the team. I need to lay off every on the team. I don't know what my plan is. I just know it's not venture capital. That was one of the craziest, scariest things I've ever done. And the thing that I found, I just actually talked about this. I was in Silicon Valley talking to women entrepreneurs and they were like, what happened? And I said, you know what? When you show up with your full truth, you bring out the best in others. Because as you know, one of the venture capitalists, he's still a dear friend of mine, but the other one was not a friend. Mm -hmm. He was a very famous VC, very prominent. We knew each other, but he wasn't a friend. And he's actually not someone from whom I'd seen a lot of emotion before. You know, he's a pretty straight edge guy. And when I said this to him, he got up from behind his desk. I'll never forget it. He doesn't usually get up. He like leans back usually with arms across the chest, you know, the power move. He got up and he kind of leaned on his desk and he looked at me and he said, Natalie, I did not invest in this company for the app. I invested in you because I think you have something special to give to the world. So if you need to throw everything out and go take two years, whatever, I support you 100%. And he really meant it. And yes, of course, the $2 million he invested in me is not a big deal. It's a huge fund. But I actually think he was speaking from his greatest part as a human being. And I share that because 
I think when we're genuine about stepping out of line, when we're doing it because it serves our true self, we will get a lot of support from people who the last person in the world who I expected to say those kind words to me was that VC. Yeah, that's incredible. By the way, do you remember you gave me a gift? It's a beautiful box. I have it at my desk. It's a box and it says, just when the caterpillar yes. thought it's going to be over, it turned it into a butterfly. It became yeah, a butterfly. Yeah, I think it's a quote by Eckhart Tolle. Right. Yeah. So that's your journey. Sometimes you the caterpillar and then... Yeah, and, and then, then you, you have into, to go... I guess yeah. the thing is, you know, you have to go through the mess, right? Yeah. And so much... I mean, you know, when I left McKinsey for that startup, guess what? The startup exploded in four months because yeah. the market crashed, right? So it wasn't some beautiful journey. It took me a long time to get back on my feet. I became a venture capitalist by stepping out of line. I need to share the story because people always say, well, how did you become a venture capitalist? I was working with another startup when we came to pitch this VC in New York. And it was like three of us were working on eBooks. There was like five eBooks in the market mm -hmm. at the time. We were pitching this company and I was quote unquote running business development, whatever, you know, you make up fancy titles. I was trying to get publishers to pay attention to us. One of my slides, I said, you know, and our publishing partners are 150% behind us. And the lead partner leaned over and he closed my laptop, which is a very passive aggressive move, right? There's four VCs, me and my other founder. And he looked at me and he said, young lady, I don't understand how anyone can be more than 100% behind you. And I was like, oh my God. And I looked at uh, James Alexander, who's the CEO of the company. He was like going white, red, white, red in the face. And I had two choices in the time. I really wanted to run out of the room, just to be honest. I was not feeling very gutsy, but... I also knew that wasn't a choice. So I did the other thing. I like tapped into my true self without knowing it. I said to him, English is my second language. I came here as a refugee. And I learned that Americans like cliches. So I'm using a cliche, but I'll make you a deal. If you invest in this company, I will never, ever use this cliche again. He starts laughing. Everyone starts laughing. Whew. I'm funny. Okay. I happen to be funny. I actually think that humor is an incredible social lubricant and tool that women underuse. I think many women are funny and we should practice that. We should be ourselves. So in that moment, the thing I'm trying to say is I stepped out of line. I spoke back to this very important dude by being funny. We left the meeting. My phone rings. I remember it was a flip phone. Get on the phone. Hi, this is Cheryl. I'm Jay Goldberg's assistant. He would like to talk to you. And I'm like, what? Gets on the phone. He's like, I want you to come work for me. I was like, what? He's like, I have not had anyone handle me like that in a really long time. You have guts. I want you to come work for me. So here I am, 24 years old. You think I jump at a chance to go be a VC? No. My response is, you know, I don't really know what this venture capital thing is. And I think you have an attitude problem. So no. And I close the phone. <laughs> okay. So again, I was stepping out of every line at yes. that moment. But the thing I'm trying to say, I didn't like have a plan. I just was in flow, I guess, in that moment. The startup failed, obviously. There was mm -hmm. not enough market. In nine months, I needed a job. I called Jay Goldberg, which I realize is a crazy gutsy move to call back a guy you told off. I called him back and I said, hi, this is Natalie. Remember me, the 150%? He said, sure. I said, can I have that job? <laughs> he said, yep. I've actually kept the office because I knew you'd call me back. And that's how I became a VC. In no way, not even a straight line. It wasn't even a vision or a plan. I just... I'm not going to say I took an opportunity that came to me because I rejected it for a while. Yeah. But in some way, I also created it yeah. because I showed my true self, right? And that's how I became a VC. And I think that for me is, you know, in this conversation is making me realize that when you step out of line, it doesn't mean you know exactly where you're going, but you're following some instinct. 
Stay tuned to the next episode with Natalie Kogan, where we continue our conversation about what happiness means, why do we need friends, and the power of spirituality and sense of purpose. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun, I say. It's all.